This better be good, huh? <sighs> I'm so excited to be with you guys. Um, so we are kind of uh, talking about something that's kind of big, how to change the world. <laughs> no big deal, just how to change the world. Um, and I want to start by talking about one of the times in our country's history where the world changed in a very drastic and rapid time. Um, so I want to take you back to 1961, um, which none of us were born, maybe a couple of us were born in 1961. Um, <laughs> I think, are y'all born in 1961? Yeah, see, David's parents were born in 1961. They, they remember. So 1961, I want to give you a little bit of a, think about, this is your world in 1961. A pound of bacon cost 67 cents. I know, isn't that awesome? How much bacon could you get if it was 67 cents a pound? Um, any baseball fans in the house? Mickey Mantle uh, was the highest paid baseball player, and he signed a contract in 1961 for $75,000, which was a lot of money back then. Um, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were actually racing that season to see if they could break Babe Ruth's record. And Roger Maris actually broke the home run record the last day of the season, which I think is really cool. He hit 61 home runs in 1961. Um, it was a really cool year. It was actually a really, I don't think college students were that different. And the reason I'm saying that is I want to show you a picture of a world record that was set at Fresno State. You can show the picture um, by 73 college students. Oh, that's, sorry, that's, that's Roger, man, that Roger uh, that's Mickey Mantle. Sorry, so that's, I didn't show that one. But this is 73 college students all fitting on a dorm bed in Fresno State. That was a world record. But I don't know if it'll be a world record for long, right? Are some of you guys going to go home and try this? It looks painful, especially for the people on the very bottom. So yeah, college students kind of were the same as they are now. Um, and also they were the same in that they were passionate. And I want to show you a picture of Joan... Trumpower is her name, and she was arrested in Jackson, Mississippi in 1961 um, just for going and riding buses in the South to fight for civil rights with Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Um, I think college students have always been passionate. College students have always stood up for what was right, and uh, they didn't just fight here in the, war in, in, uh, the United States in 1961. A lot of them uh, actually fought in the military, and 1961 was one of the most volatile seasons, uh, maybe in the history of the world, outside of the, the world wars, uh, because the Soviet Union pledged support, and they pledged to fight alongside any nation that would fight for communism. And so what that meant was several nations, including um, North, North um, Vietnam, believed that they could overtake South Vietnam. They were separate countries back then, and the U.S. was an ally. So, so what happened was North Vietnam invaded South Vietnam in the name of taking over um, to establish a communist re regime. And so what happened was we, spent, we sent 400 Green Berets, like really awesome guys to like train these South Vietnamese um, fighters to fight, and it didn't really work. So we sent like we sent 8,000 more troops over to help them, and we actually send, ended up sending 200,000 troops to South Vietnam in 1961, and many of them were college students. Um, that they, they have a lot different experience in life than most of you guys. Um, so it was a definitely, a, it was a crazy time, 
the Berlin Wall started being constructed in 1961, which if you don't know about the Berlin Wall, it was basically a wall right down the middle of Berlin to separate East communist from the West, which is democratic. And it kind of acted as a wall from the entire West, which was democratic freedom, and the East, which was communist. And so what happened was these tensions were just really building between the Soviet Union, who was kind of the the world um, armor and the world encourager for communism, and the United States, which was kind of the world's um, supporter of democracy. And what happened was there was never a battle between those two nations, and that's why they called it the Cold War. And so for some reason, this conflict started creating a competition to get to space. And uh, 1961, the first man made it into space. His name was Yuri Gurigin. Yuri I'm probably butchering that. But he was a Soviet. Uh, they called him cosmonauts. And uh, the United States soon followed with a guy named Alex Shepard that was, he went to be in space too. So, um, of course, the next big thing was going to be the next big thing. And it was in the middle of that tension and that looking, the world was looking for hope, I think. Um, and so JFK, John F. Kennedy, stepped on the scene in May 25th, 1961. He had just been elected president that, that January started. And he said this, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important to the long-term exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Just to put this in reference, the best computer in 1961 had less computing power than my toaster. And so to say that this sounded impossible uh, was an understatement. Um, And I think, I like to wonder, what do you think the people who worked at NASA felt? What was their reaction when they heard their president say, I believe we should commit ourselves to sending a man to the moon? I think there were very two very different reactions, and I think all of us probably fall into one of these two categories. Um, the first one would be if you're a dreamer. And a dreamer is someone who can't think big enough um, you don't necessarily worry about details all the time. And sometimes you get caught up with the abstract, things that are not real. Um, a dreamer would, would love this quote. Ronald Reagan said it, but he didn't invent this quote. It said, dream no small dreams, for they stir not the heart of man. A dreamer loves to be stirred to bigger and better and maybe not think too much about the plan. Um, the other, raise your hand if you're a dreamer, by the way. Anybody out there a dreamer? I see a few of you guys. Come on, own it. Okay, the other side of that would be a realist. By the way, I'm a dreamer. It's really hard for me to talk about the realist because I don't understand you. My wife was trying to explain to me what a realist is, and she says, think of it this way. The dream is not real. <laughs> it's, it's not a real thing until a realist makes a plan, and you, you can take the steps, and it can become a real thing. Uh, uh, you guys who are realists will love this quote. It says, so many of our dreams at first seem impossible, 
Then they seem improbable. And then when we summon the will, they soon become inevitable. So let me see if your hand, if you are a realist. And I'm just curious. Go ahead, you can put your hands down. Anybody feel like you don't fit into one of those categories? So maybe a little bit. Well, some of you are maybe right in between. So you, you won't be able to relate to those two. Um, but I want to know, I really, I really do want to know. I don't, I'm not just rhetorically asking this question. I want to know for, from both of you. First, let's talk to the dreamers. You're working for NASA, and you hear John F. Kennedy say, I believe we should commit ourselves to sending a man to the moon. I really want you to think about this for a second, and I really do want you to answer. What in the world is your first reaction to that? What do you, what do you say to that? Dreamers, go. Let's go. What else? What's that? That's, yeah, that's, that's a little more realist, but that's the realist. Any, dreamers, what else would you say? Anything? What? No, nothing? Let's go. That's about it. Strap a rocket to me. Let's do this. I, I got Let's do it. So, okay, if you're a realist, now, the realist, you hear John F. Kennedy say, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal of successfully sending a man to the moon and bringing him home safely, period. What, what is your initial reaction? How about you go do it? That's awesome. What else? Anything else? Here's my two weeks notice. Wow. Yeah, to it. So maybe like, is that is that all you were gonna say, right? Like, where's the rest of the plan? What's that? The overline. Yeah, the overtime alone. Because obviously the math hadn't been invented yet. The computers were like not as good as my toaster. It's kind of crazy to think about that. Um, Well, the truth is, I want you to dream big. I want us to dream so big that only God can make our dreams come true. But the other truth is, I want us to see ourselves step into the role of, of making it happen. And so we need both. I'm really thankful that I'm a dreamer and my wife, where are you at, Amy? Right there is a, is a realist. Um, so I think we're going to talk about a chapter in the Bible, Matthew 9. Matthew uh, was a guy who followed Jesus. He was a tax collector, like one of the most hated people in Israel. And for some reason, um, Jesus tells him, come follow me. And he ended up believing in Jesus so much that he wrote this entire gospel to um, tell us what Jesus was like and the unbelievable things he did. Um, so we're going to start in Matthew 9, we're going to read 35 through 38. And I want you to think about this first verse in terms of whether you're a dreamer or whether you're a realist, maybe how this would make you feel. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages. (laughs) Dreamers, you're like, wow, he went through all of them? All the towns, all the villages? And, And what does it say? teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, dreamers are, I think maybe dreamers, we hear all that and we say, wow. And I think a realist, you guys hear all that and you say, how? Right? Like, 
It sounds like, it kind of sounds like a logistical nightmare, right? Like people flocked to Jesus. He was like a rock star. He like had more people around him than Justin Bieber. He, everywhere he went, people surrounded him. They brought all the, the sick people to him, all the lame people, all the blind people they could find, dead people. They tried to get dead people close to Jesus. They, everybody, everybody wanted to be close to Jesus. And honestly, um, it was a logistical nightmare. Um, even for us dreamers, we have to think, wow, like, it's hard not to think, how are you, gonna, how are you even going to move him, right? Like, um, and I wonder what Jesus' reaction, like, he probably wasn't a dreamer. He probably wasn't a realist. He was probably like you superhumans who were like, I'm kind of both. So, and so what, what, what does he do? What's his reaction to all these people, all these people everywhere? I think my reaction, even though I am a dreamer and I love the thinking of big numbers, kind of freaks me out a little bit. Um, but his reaction is really cool. Um, in verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he looked out and he just saw all the people. And there were thousands of them. Whenever they tried to feed him, there were 5,000 families. And when he looked out and saw the, feet, the crowds, it says he had compassion on them. Man, that is my hope for you, is that you will see the people in your life and you will just have compassion on them. And I think maybe it's a really hard ask. It's a hard thing because there's so many people when you start thinking about the people in your circles, every one of us is connected to so many people. How do you have that compassion? How did Jesus have this undeniable compassion? The word compassion here, it, it's the same thing that whenever it talks about being gutted, he was gutted. Something deep down within him just felt for these people. It was, it was a form of love that he had. And man, I just don't understand how he had it. And I think maybe if we keep reading this and look around some more, we'll, we'll see a little bit of how to, and the reason he had compassion on him, it says because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that they needed a leader. He knew that they needed a leader. And the people in your circles, they don't need someone to be a follower. They need someone to be a leader, someone to do what you know is right. And you know what? Sometimes it's, it's hard when you're in circles like this to step out and be a leader and be a shepherd because a shepherd is someone who really cares for the people around him. And Jesus had that compassion. I think he wants us to have that compassion. And it's, it's a big thing and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to understand. And, and so you think, okay, Jesus, we want to be like that. How, how do we do that? And Jesus kind of just goes the other way. He doesn't tell him how. <laughs> All he does in the next verse, verse 37, he says, then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. And I'm sure his disciples were thinking, yeah, Jesus, look at all these people. Look at all these people. They're everywhere. And Jesus told him, you have no idea. You have no idea the movement that I am starting that will go throughout generations, that will go throughout centuries of millions of people whose lives will be transformed because of my gospel. You have no idea. And Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, we're few. We could use some help. And he said, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to the harvest field. And so Jesus, he says, I'm not really gonna tell you how. I'm, and, and you know what? He never really tells him 
How, how did he have compassion on these people? What are we supposed to do? He just said pray. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to pray. Um, but the cool thing is they thought, man, yeah, the harvest is plentiful. Look at all these people. And the truth is, even now, with all that God has done throughout thousands of years of moving, I'm telling you right now, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because Ephesians 3.20 says this, God has immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine prepared for us. He has immeasurably more. And so I think maybe we're still wondering, how can we have that compassion? I hope you're asking that question. I hope you're, I hope you're asking, how, and I think maybe it's Jesus' compassion that maybe was what helped him change the world. How can we change the world? How can we have compassion? How can we reap this harvest? And I think Jesus never told them. But you know what he did? He showed them. And this is really powerful. If you look throughout, if you have a Bible with you, go look, let's look through this beginning of this chapter. Verse two, what does he do? paralytic was lying on the ground. He looks at him and he says, take heart. In verse two, your son, your sins are forgiven. And then, and then later, verse, verse six, it says, get up, take your mat and go home. Jesus healed him. He forgave his sins. He healed him. Verse nine, you can see the guy who wrote this book, Matthew. Jesus walks up to him. He's an outcast. Nobody, nobody wants to have anything to do with a tax collector. And Jesus says, hey, you, Matthew, follow me. He didn't, he didn't get a ton of people to follow. He said, Matthew, you, one person, you, I want you to follow me. And so Matthew just got up and followed him. If you go down to, he, he starts, he starts uh, talking to some, some Pharisees and arguing with some people, and then you, go, you skip down to verse 20. He's on his way to, to raise a dead girl from the, raise a dead girl to life, and it says that there's a woman who had bleeding, and Jesus stopped, and he healed her. One woman. And then you go all the way to verse 25, and Jesus, he, he brings a woman, a dead girl back to life. Verse 29, there's two, there's two blind men, so the most, he's, the most he's gotten up to is two, but what he does is he, he takes his hands and individually he touches each man. One, one, he touches one, and then he touches the other one. Are you seeing a pattern here? The last thing he does before this passage is verse 33, there's a demon-possessed man. Jesus goes to him, and he drives that demon out. Are you seeing a pattern here? How was Jesus able to have, to look at the crowds, at the thousands? I mean, he's God. He can see everyone individually anyways. But how are we, how are we gonna have compassion on crowds? How are we gonna see people as sheep without a shepherd and have the compassion that it takes to lead them, to care for them. And this is the only point tonight. If you don't take anything else home tonight, please take this very, just take this one thing. The way you change the world is one heart at a time. The way you change the world is one heart at a time. That's how God changes the world. And I, man, I see you guys, and I wish I could have gotten this whenever I was your age. 
because I was in so many circles. I was, I was in a fraternity. I was in a service club. I was in a college group. Um, I was in a dorm. I was in a school. And I, I, I did want to make a difference in my, my church. And I, I really did want God to use me to change my service club. And, but you know what? The way you change the world is one heart at a time. Are you getting that? You getting that? Just kick something. <laughs> um, you know, when they went to the moon, Apollo 11 made it all the way to the moon and all the way back. And when they made it to the moon, they could only go one mile at a time. You know, like in Star Wars or whatever, they jump through like hoops of, what's it called? Like, you go... It's like, uh, what's it called when they go really fast through a bunch of, that, yeah, they don't, that's not real. You can only go one mile at a time, even if you're going to the freaking moon. <laughs> and think about that for a second. You can only go one mile at a time. I, I love uh, dove hunting, and you can ask Brandon, I'm really bad at it, but I, uh, I love dove hunting. I love getting out and to nature, meaning like at a nice uh, sunflower field. It's really nice to be out there, and um, the sun's usually setting as we're hunting, and we're starting to set. Um, and the dove, I used to get really excited when I saw a big group of dove flying across. And for some reason, when all those dove are flying across, I would almost never get one. Uh, I would aim and shoot and didn't get one. But when one would come by, and give me a minute to, you know, set my sights and lead it a little bit, I was a lot better of a shot. It's easier to hit one than to try to hit more than one when you're only designed to hit one at a time. That shotgun can't hit multiple. I mean, it didn't saw off, you know. Um, I love the organization Compassion International. Um, if you've never heard of them, they're amazing. Uh, their mission is to release children worldwide from poverty. For you dreamers, doesn't that make you say, wow? And if you're a realist, it makes you say, how, right? Like, how in the world do they do this? And um, I, we, my wife and I, we sponsor one compassion child uh, because that's what they do. They only sponsor one child at a time. They think in terms of one child, and they could do amazing community restoration projects and invest in communities, and lots of organizations have done that before, tried to invest in whole communities, and I went on to Compassion's website, and this is one of the FAQs, one of the frequently asked questions. It says, why, why does Compassion focus on individual child development rather than broader community development work? Listen to what the answer is. I want you to listen to this. During Compassion's 60 years of development work, we've seen various approaches to breaking the cycle of poverty in children's lives. We, listen to this, listen to this. We've discovered that changed circumstances rarely change people's lives, while changed people inevitably change their circumstances. Did you hear that? Changed circumstances rarely change people's lives, while changed people 
inevitably change their circumstances. Community development is important work that addresses the external circumstances of poverty and is an important complement to our work. However, our primary compassion's primary focus is individual child development, an inside-out, bottom-up approach that recognizes the God-given value and potential of each individual child. Many of these children grow up to become positive influences in their own communities. How would our organizations be different if we recognized the God-given value and potential of each individual? How would this ministry be different if we, if we saw it not as a group, but as every single one of us is God-given value and potential, unlimited potential with God? That's how the gospel is, you know? I don't know if you know this, you may not know this, but nobody gets group saved. It's true. If you think that because you're around Christians, you are a Christian, that is not the case. God saves people one at a time. Now, lots of people can get saved at the same time, but it's still an individual act. And so if you think I'm a Christian because I'm around Christians. Um, we love you so much. We're so glad you're here. But uh, you are not a Christian. And the great news is you can become one. One, you can become one. And you know what? A lot of you may already be thinking of a one person that you want to pray for, that you want to try to be there for. But some of you tonight, the one person that needs the healing touch of Jesus is you. And so please don't leave this room um, without finding that because that's eternity. It's so much more than anything we're going to have in this life. Um, in fact, in just a minute, I'm going to go to the back and Brandon and some interns are going to be in the back. And if that is you, if you've realized I'm not a Christian because I've never had the one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with Jesus. Come, come to the back because the truth is once you have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus, your life is forever changed. And for those of you who know that you have had that experience with Jesus, I want you to just take a second. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you're the one who needs Jesus, who needs to know Jesus in a personal, one-on-one -on -one way. The band is gonna come up in a minute and they're gonna sing. And while we're singing, just go to the back. I, I, I hope you'll have the courage to admit, I need a savior. I need Jesus. But if, you're, if you feel like you've already had that experience and you've, you know Jesus one-on-one, -on -one, and I pray that you would think about, maybe don't, don't think about several people in your life. Think about one person in your life. Think about one person in your life that you can invest in, that you can share Jesus with. And um, Brandon was actually telling me about the, uh, the map of Lubbock that's in the back. And if you've been here, you've, you've, you've seen it and he's told you about it. But the yellow pins represent someone who is being sent into 
a place as to do ministry, to share Jesus, to, to show the love of Jesus. And the white pins represent a gospel conversation, a, a conversation about Jesus. And so I wanna challenge you. If you know Jesus in a personal way, pray for that person, pray for that one, that one person that you know needs Jesus and commit to have a gospel conversation. Commit to invest in that person and to, to tell them, tell them about what God is doing in your life. Tell them about what God could do for them and put a pin, put a white pin in that map and say, I'm gonna commit to having this conversation to try and, and share the gospel with someone, build that relationship and invest in someone. So we're gonna sing. And man, I love this song we're about to sing. Um, I'm gonna pray for us, and then I want you guys to spend just a minute in prayer. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you'd have the courage to step up and get out of your seat and come to the back and find one of us, and let's talk about what it means to follow Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. And if you have someone in your mind, in your heart, that you know needs that, needs to have that personal relationship with Jesus, why don't you take a minute and pray for him, and then go put a pin in that map and say, I'm gonna commit to praying for this person and to try and have a conversation with them and share Jesus with them. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna have a second. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing.